Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Matt Downing. And I'm Janine Dunn. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. We are so pumped that you are here in with us in our third part of our DIP series. That's our dissertation in practice series, where we feature some amazing researchers from our cohort of uh, friends at Northeastern University. And tonight we're here with two more amazing researchers, um, but we're down a co-host. Co-hosts, it's so sad. <laughs> you know, right? Julie's uh, having a nice uh, evening with her parents, and so um, we're more than happy to take up uh, the slack as she um, does her thing. And before we get into our uh, spotlights of our researchers this evening, co-hosts, we want to talk a little bit about um, one of these questions that come up for a lot of people who are considering pursuing a doctorate. And I know this question was a big one in my mind. Um, when I entered the Northeastern program, I was about, um, let's see, I think I was, a, I was maybe 10 years into teaching. So I, I'm uh, in my 14th year now. Um, and I was considering this program or just a program, a doctoral program, because I was like, I want to, you know, further my scholarship. I want to better myself as a, as a change agent. I want to improve the lives of more students and amplify my voice in education. But the thing I was worried about more than anything was, was I actually just going to be able to have the time, right? The time to dedicate to pursuing research as a, as a scholarly practitioner and balance, you know, my life. And I think that's what we want to talk about for a little bit tonight to start this off. And I'm going to kick the mic over to Janine for a little bit. Janine, how did you figure out that a, doc a doctoral program was for you, you know, and how did you balance that with, um, you know, your home life and, and, your, and your regular work life? That is a great question. <laughs> uh, I, I was saying earlier, I'm not so sure I actually mastered it, but I have some tips for some people for sure. The, the way that I arrived at, you know, getting into an EDD program um, was probably by accident. I don't know. I had I was already had already taken a bunch of classes because of, you know, getting an instructional coaching certification and the uh, principal certification. And then it was kind of like, well, what am I going to do next? And it was kind of like, well, there's nothing else was left except for, you know, go for a doctorate. <laughs> and, um, nice. yeah. And, uh, it, what was great is that Julie was kind of sort of in the same boat, like, well, what do I want to do next too? Julie's my teaching partner as well. So, um, it was awesome to actually talk somebody else into doing this alongside of me. <laughs> so I had a wingman, but, mm. um, yeah, getting into it and really, I, I felt like I had already developed some habits just from already taking some classes leading up to this, with it, which I think actually kind of helped me out a bit because I was already managing a couple courses here and there. And, you know, I have three kids and they're all involved in sports and dance and everything else. Um, so trying to coordinate and figure out how to make this all work. Um, one thing that I, for certain for me is that I have a really great support system. Um my parents actually live with us, so they are a huge help with my with my children. Um, my husband is is all in, so uh, you know they would help out with with you know making sure that the kids got somewhere if they needed to be. I would I always had my books with me in the car wherever I went. Mm, nice. um, so like when my my daughter had like a two hour you know dance practice that was like forty five minutes away from our house, I I would bring my stuff with me and I would just sit outside or sit there and I would I would do my work 
you know, wherever I had a spare minute. If I'm riding on the train, my books were out. If I, you know, it was like wherever I could find find a little bit of time. Um, because I will say that it, I, it, it did end up being more time consuming than I think I had anticipated. Because um, it, it was definitely more time consuming than any of the previous, you know, coursework I had done. Um, so having a great support system and I would say too, also kind of carving out that personal time for you to actually work on things. Um, I know like for me, once I got home, when I was at home, I couldn't really sit down and work on it. There was too many distractions, you know, between having, you know, my kids and cooking dinner and doing wash and whatever else, you know, ended up needing my attention. Um, I found it really hard to work at home. So I would actually set aside, you know, maybe an extra hour to, to stay at, school where I was working, um, to just devote to my doctoral studies, or I would go to the library, you know, or, you know, I just, I just made the time for just that kind of stuff so that it didn't get away from me and I didn't fall behind. So those are, those are my tips. (laughs) What about you, Matt? I don't know. I think the beginning of the program, it was, uh, it was a lot, right. It was transitioning from not being in a program to a program. It was a lot more reading, a lot more Mm -hmm. writing, a lot more work, and it was difficult one thing that was helpful for me was just organizing space, time to get these things done. So for me, I came home every day, I had about an hour and a half, and I just made sure I stayed on top of things. And as the program has gone on, I haven't really used that hour and a half after work. Uh, I haven't really had to um, you know, do stuff on the weekends as much because it's been more intertwined in the action research, which has been a lot, but a lot of that that work is getting done uh, during the day at the at the site before the day, and I just sort of fit it in because it's it's intertwining my passions and the work. It's not so much I got to write this paper; it's more I got to do this work that I'm that I'm sort of interested in. So the work I don't think has gotten less; it just hasn't been as unbearable as it was at the beginning. To the point where, like Rachel was asking the other day, she's like, "Are you still in an EDD program? Because I haven't seen you doing any any work." I'm like, "No, nah, I'm still in. Everything's <laughs> cool. You know, don't worry about me." But you know, bottom line is, uh, you do have to schedule it because it's you know what they told us at the beginning of the program. This is a doctorate program, but if you're passionate about it, if you get systems set up, uh, you will be able to succeed. And it's been great for me. And I would highly encourage other people that are interested in it to go for it. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I think that my reflection is similar to yours, Matt. The work has actually felt like it's become less as the program has gone on, even though mm-hmm. it probably has been the same or more. And I think part of the reason why is because the work for the program has become so closely linked with the work of my work at my school. And there's just like a very close marriage there. And so little things that I would do at school, like prepping for a community of practice meeting that we had, I ended up using that stuff all for my study. And so I would spend, you know, two and a half hours prepping for the community of practice meeting. And then that lent to like three to four pages of um, you know, appendix writing for my for my dissertation. And so like because those things were so closely entwined by the end, um, that I wasn't I wasn't doing, you know, five times the amount of work that I needed to do. I was doing, you know, twice the amount of work I needed to do because the other three times were just stuff that I had to do anyway. And it was all just sort of feeding into the same, you know, research and the same literature and the same 
you know, um, just, just time that I was spending on things that I needed to spend. So yeah, I, I agree. I think Janine, you're, um, the dance life. I don't live that life. I don't have any kids. And so that's, um, totally unique to me. Uh, Matt, how has it been balancing with your kids at home? I think it's been good, you know, as long as I have structures and I set it up and I'm not trying to balance too many. Like if I'm with them, I'm with them. If I'm not, then I'm not. I try not to be like, oh, let me like, uh, you know, write this little part of the paper while I'm like doing Legos because that doesn't end well. So yeah, I just try to create structure. Well, thanks co-hosts. I appreciate that. I hope that um, listeners out there, you have taken a little bit away from the, these like entry little conversations. If you're considering doing a doctorate, we encourage you to, um, you know, reach out. We would love to chat. You can hit us all up on LinkedIn um, or on Twitter. Um, either are great spaces to find us. And, uh, and you can always visit our website and, and, you know, our contact information is, is there somewhere too. Um, that's rethinkingedu.co. Hopefully you're listening from our website or, or from Apple podcasts, but before, um, we get too far into the weeds about doctoral program, nuts and bolts and why everybody who's out there thinking about one should, you know, consider Northeastern's program. We want to get into highlighting some of the reason why we're actually here <laughs> to talk to these amazing researchers. And Janine, I'm going to um, send the mic over your way so you can start up a conversation with our first researcher spotlight of this episode. Yes, I would like to welcome uh, Dana Huff here to the microphone. <laughs> Hi, Dana. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Great. I'm so excited that you're joining us. We can't wait to hear about your study. Um, but why don't you start, just give us a, a quick a quick uh, introduction and, and where you're from and uh, kind of just what, what your role is in life. <laughs> sure. Um, so I am living in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, honestly, where I'm from is a much more involved kind of conversation, but that's where I consider home right now. Um, I am the English department chair at Worcester Academy, and I've been engaging in my action research study at the site where I work over the last three years. That's great. All right. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the context of your study? Sure. Um, so I'm actually studying um, teachers' perspectives and perceptions after implementing a proficiency-based grading and authentic assessment system. And this has evolved quite a bit because when I when I first started uh, the program at Northeastern, I thought what I wanted to do was eliminate grades. And um, I still think that would be sort of an ideal, um, but I realized over the course of the program and also, you know, I have to give a lot of credit, I think, to uh, taking the policy course. Um, one of the assignments I did in that course was a policy memo. And I had to basically, you know, select an audience. So I selected my head of school and I had to consider several different policy alternatives around my problem of practice. And it was doing that assignment that I realized, you know, um, eliminating grades at my site as zero political feasibility. <laughs> it's just never, never, ever going to be something that will happen. So um, my position sort of evolved, and I guess um, to tell you a little bit about the, the place where I work, it is a private day and boarding school in central Massachusetts. Um, we have about 500 students this year. Um, our 
student body size is a little bit lower this year because of the pandemic and we were doing a hybrid uh, learning situation and so we could not you know uh, fill the classrooms like we we normally might be able to in a typical year because of social distancing and and um, all of those kinds of things um, and the the site has uh, grades uh, six through eight 12, but we also have postgraduates. Um, postgraduates would be studying at the school if they're looking to uh, maybe go to more selective colleges and they're thinking uh, that they might need to, um, you know, sort of uh, boost their academics, you know. Um, so they, they go to this, this school for a sort of, it, I think of it like an academic gap year is, is really what it is. Um, a lot of times these students are athletes and they're trying to get into d1 schools and you know um so that's that's part of the context for that um i would say one of the reasons i wanted to study this is um i don't know what your experiences have been like as educators but it seems to me like grades have always been like one of the most difficult aspects of my job um i never took any coursework when i was in undergrad on how to grade students um, I actually put this uh, at the very end of my dissertation, and, and uh, it, it's a really sort of interesting story, but when I was in undergrad, my mentor teacher, who I was working with in my student teaching practicum, sat me down and said, let me show you how I grade papers, because we're English teachers, and she fanned the papers across four desks, I want to say, and she just started reading them, and the papers that she thought were good, she would move all the way over to the right and she would just sort of rank the papers as she went. Well, I think this one is just a little bit better than that one, so I'm going to move it ahead a little bit, you know. And then she would arbitrarily put numbers out of 100 on each paper. And so I never saw a rubric, I don't think, until I was four years into my teaching career. So, um, that was how I learned to grade papers. You know, that was who, how my mentor taught me to grade papers. And, you know, now that I've done some actual research and learned the extent to which, um, you know, grading is so subjective, and arbitrary, I and mean, it's, it's no wonder, you know, that teachers are inconsistent. And, you know, teachers are all over the map with how they grade papers. And I think assessment was always an issue, too, because, again, I never had any coursework in assessment. And, you know, what I knew was tests. Um, and I actually did used to give tests quite a bit as a teacher. I haven't given a test in many years now. Um, as an English teacher, I really feel like the best way to assess my students' learning is through asking them to write and do uh, reflections in a variety of ways. So... Yeah, I think, you know, that was sort of the context for me wanting to study this topic just in general. It's been something that has interested me now for, I'd say, the bulk of my career. Um, and I just wanted to figure out if we know how um, inconsistent and variable um, grading practices are, if we know how much harm grades do to a student's self-concept and how it zaps their motivation. And we've known all of this for over a hundred years. You know, you can look at some very old studies that indicate these problems. Why are we still using it? So um, 
that was sort of my context for wanting to learn more. Like, what is it that is getting in our way um, in, in terms of implementing a better grading and assessment system? I love it. We could totally probably just do a whole podcast itself on talking about <laughs> grading systems and, and all that. Yeah, we'll, we'll save that one for another day. But um, all right, great. So tell us a little bit about how, you know, uh, you took these research questions and then, you know, investigated them and, and your major findings. Yeah. So um, one thing that it will not shock anybody to hear out in terms of a major finding and particularly in the first cycle of research that I did when I talked to students and faculty was I um, actually uncovered that, yes, indeed, we were engaging in inconsistent and variable grading practice at the school. Um, in spite of the fact that in 2013, the school decided that they wanted to move towards a more project-based learning model, um, the students and, and teachers both said they still felt like tests were the dominant ways that students were assessed in terms of their learning. And that gave students a lot of anxiety. They felt like uh, they didn't know what was going to be asked of them on the test. They didn't always get an opportunity to revise that work and they felt like they forgot what they learned. But they were really animated, you know, when they talked about projects that they had done. Um, some of them were talking about projects they had done as far back as middle school, and all of my uh, student participants were, were upper school students um, in 10th grade onward. And um, th they could still remember everything that they had learned, and they felt like it had given them a lot of confidence and that they had done a lot of skill building those projects. And, you know, it didn't shock me too much to learn either that the teachers actually preferred projects as well. They felt like they were more engaging to read, you know, much more fun, um, you know, and, and really got at a lot of different skills that students needed to know. But they also felt like college was expecting them to be able to take tests. So it felt like they needed to assign those. And that was one finding. Um, I also found that... Um, the, the participants, it was really interesting because we, we established a focus group um, that, that met uh, five times uh, from October 2020 to February 2021, and um, it really developed into a professional learning community. And I'm not sure why I wasn't looking for that or I wasn't expecting that, um, I guess because I was so focused on what I would learn about assessment and grading, it didn't occur to me that, you know, this, this would actually be a great professional develop opportunity for these teachers. And, you know, they were saying things like, well, I wish all of our meetings could be a lot more like this, where we're examining student work together and we're, you're talking through um, issues and, you know, cause we, we talked about other things too, in addition to the study, like, you know, teaching in a pandemic and what are we doing to adjust? And, um, you know, I thought, you know, it was really, really, really cool that they were able to bring dilemmas and ask for advice from um, the other participants and they were really supportive. And I think that was especially key because um, two of the participants actually knew, okay, my, my supervisor is in this group um, and what I'm going to say you know, might make me vulnerable 
uh, it's a possibility that this person might, you know, judge what I'm saying. And they, they didn't feel that at all. It seemed that they felt like there was a lot of trust. So I didn't really expect it to become, you know, this professional learning community that it became. But that was sort of an, I guess, an unlooked for um, finding that that surprised and delighted me and I was really excited about. Um, it probably also will not surprise anybody that um, the the key to implementing grading and assessment reform is leadership. Um, you know, what I heard from the participants is that we thought that worked great. We loved um, using proficiency-based grading and authentic assessment. We also are afraid that it, if we decide we want to implement this system uh, school-wide, there will be resistance. So we need to be very clear with faculty that these are the grading practices that you can use and these are the ones that you should not use and these are the expectations around, you know, um, what we're asking everybody to do. And honestly, right now we have so few mandates and there isn't anything that's sort of codified in writing as a policy that says this is what you should be doing um, in terms of grading and assessment. Um, you know, we also um, just, you know, one final finding, there were some pretty significant um, systemic and institutional barriers. Um, the biggest one that sort of came up several times was uh, we're using a 100 point grading scale at the school because that's what most gradebook software programs are built on. And um, that is the most wildly inaccurate um, grading scale out there. Um, actually, Thomas Gusky um, has a, a great article about how um, it came about, you know, because software developers are engineers and not educators. And so they developed this grading scale that's really not the best um, grading scale to use. Um, I would love to, to know if there's a, a grading scale out there, not a grading scale rather, but a software program out there that allows you to, uh, to grade on a four point scale. Um, because that that's that's the ideal, but that got in our way a lot. And the other thing that I think a lot of people were afraid of is it's just fear. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here shaking my head, going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, absolutely. I mean, we've I've had plenty of these discussions this past year with with the pandemic happening and everything like that. What do grades actually mean? Um, how do you transition to proficiency based learning? Um, you know, assessments and just. Yeah, how do you make that transition? I mean, I love the point that you made about the colleges, um, uh, that, that there's that expectation that you you have to be able to take tests in colleges. Uh, and and it kind of that's a trickle-down trickle effect, right? Like, that's the same thing in high school. Like, I'm dealing with eighth graders right now, and it's like, oh, well, you got to make sure that you, you know, we got to make sure that you're able to take some tests because that's what they do in the high school. It's not because we want you to take tests. It's just because we got to prepare you to take tests, you know? Like, well, one of my participants made that remark, actually, when I interviewed her. She said, you know, I feel like so much of what we do is driven by preparing students for the next level, whatever that is. And she says, I don't think that we should be thinking that way. I think we should be more intentional about what we're asking students to do. But there's that fear, oh, if I don't do this, you know, assessment and 
grading in, in this exact way, they're never going to be ready for whatever it is they're going to experience in the next level. So what do you think some of the, what do you think some of the implications might be for our, for the listeners of our podcast here? How can they, how can they take what you've, uh, what you shared with us and what can they do with it? I definitely think that, um, you know, if you're a teacher, you really need to, um, investigate this, um, Thomas Guskey and Susan Brookhart have this uh, chapter, this book that they've edited. And one of the remarks that they made was that looking at the grading research that has come out over the last century or so is like watching a train wreck happen in slow motion. Like you know what's going to happen. You know what a big disaster is coming away and you can't do anything to stop it. And um Honestly, I loved that analogy. I mean, I don't, I don't love that it happened, but you know, I thought it, it was so um, apt a description of exactly what reading all this research was like for me. I mean, my oldest study in my dissertation was published in 1888, and it's this um, this study of a, um, a, a, this this uh, mathematician was basically running statistics. And he basically said, this is, this is not statistically valid, this system of trying to um, evaluate student work. You know, and so it goes back that far, these problems. And there are some studies in my research that would really curl your hair to read. Like um, there's one that was done in 1912. And basically the two researchers were Starch and Elliot. And they, um, they found that, you know, didn't matter if you were an English teacher or a math teacher, there was a wide degree of variability among uh, the different graders in how they assessed student learning because everybody's looking for different things. You know, even if you're grading a math test, which should be, should be pretty objective, one grader might be looking to see, well, did you follow the steps and write all of the steps out? Is it neat and legible? Can is, what does your drawing look like? You know, some people might grading that. Other people wouldn't be grading those things. They would be just looking. Okay, did you get the answer in the end? Okay, that's fine. Um, so everybody's you know evaluating different things. Well, um, I I have a 2011 study by Brimmy that's also in my dissertation. Basically, there he wanted to see if he could replicate the findings um, in Starch and Elliott's 1912 study about. Um, grading student writing. And so what he did was he had, I think it was 73 English teachers who all worked for the same school district. And he trained them in using the six plus one writing traits rubric, which is a common rubric. And uh, then he gave them all the exact same student essay. The essay earned every score from an A to an F. Even after these teachers had been trained and even after, you know, even considering that they were all part of the same school district, so you're, it's probably as homogenous a group of people as you could probably get together. And it, that one just, think about that one all the time, you know, because it really matters who's in the classroom. And I think that's a really important implication. How equitable is your grading is something you really need to think about. And, uh, you know, some... Teachers are very rigid and, you know, uh, some teachers are not as rigid and, you know, students' experiences are just going to be so different based on the grading and assessment philosophies of the teachers that they have. So I think everybody 
needs to, you know, educate themselves. If they grade students at all, they need to educate themselves on all of this. And frankly, I think everybody ought to have to take classes in grading and assessment before they get in the classroom. After doing all of this work, I'm just convinced that we need to, we need to know more about what we're doing before we start doing it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you have my vote. <laughs> you, you definitely, you've given us uh, a lot to think about. Um, and I 100% agree with everything that you shared. <laughs> uh, we'll have to definitely have you come back on so we can talk about this further because I have lots of other questions for you and, um, yeah, things to consider with, with, uh, getting away with grading. Yeah, I love it. Well, thanks so much, Dana, for, for sharing that with us and the work that you're doing is, it sounds fabulous. Um, I, I love it. Well, I'm going to um, pass it over to Matt, and he's got our next guest lined up. All right. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us on Rethinking EDU. Let's just uh, get this conversation started with uh, you introducing yourself. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, what sort of work you're doing. Sure. So I'm Amanda Wild, or I guess I can say Dr. Amanda Wild now. <laughs> I'm from Rhode Island, and my study has to do with making the general education classroom more equitable for students with emotional and behavioral disorders. So for the past 13 years, I've worked as a special education teacher at a K-5 elementary charter school in a suburban town in southern New England. Um, I'll refer to it as Charter Academy, um, just for confidentiality's purposes. It has 260 students in 12 classrooms. All students with disabilities are educated in the general education classrooms, and we don't have any self-contained or specialized classrooms. When I began my doctoral studies in September 2018, Charter Academy only had one administrator. She was the principal slash superintendent slash a whole bunch of other things. And she was regularly out of the building for meetings or trainings which left lead teachers and special ed teachers in charge to deal with any behavioral issues. So lead and special ed teachers were regularly pulled from instruction, which led to loss of instructional time, special ed service hours being missed, teachers and teacher assistants feeling overwhelmed and poor communication. We had some serious challenging behaviors that resulted in numerous instances of class evacuations, physical escorts, restraints, suspensions, staff injuries, property destruction. Several educators said things like they felt like all they did was put out fires, and I think pretty much everyone, including myself, just felt completely overwhelmed by behavior. So I met with administration, the lead and the special ed teachers at Charter Academy, and we all agreed that educators were not adequately paired to accommodate students with emotional and behavioral disorders, EBD, or to handle the severe behavior challenges in their classrooms. So the purpose of my action research study was to identify and overcome the challenges for educators at Charter Academy when including students with emotional and behavioral disorders in the general ed classroom. So my study participants, I didn't want to just include classroom teachers because teacher assistants, um, specialists, consultants, they spend a lot of time with these students too. So I included everyone uh, because these participants, they each play a unique role in the education of students with EBD. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the findings uh, from your study? But before we do that, just some clarity. What was your role or what is your role in that uh, site? So I'm a special education teacher. Um, I also am the leader of our school's crisis team. So 
I was kind of the oh, one who cool. was always running around and, you know, whenever there was a problem, trying to help the students or help the teachers. And um, I do um, some train. Well, and, and now, especially because of this, I do a lot of training and have sort of taken a more leadership role to help support teachers in our school. That's great. Yeah. So why don't you bring us into your study and tell us about some of your major findings? So uh, I did some focus groups and observations uh, for my baseline or cycle zero data and found that the challenges for teaching students with EBD were inadequate training, resources, support, and communication. Challenging behaviors included refusal, eloping, distractions, disruptions, uh, property destruction, physical aggression, threatening others, swearing, poor attitudes. Behaviors that threatened safety included throwing furniture, physical aggression towards others, turning materials in the environment into weapons, and educators, they just really felt unsure of how to prevent and intervene with challenging behavior and how to maintain the learning for the rest of the class during behavioral outbursts. Uh, several participants also expressed concerns about the peers of students with EBD. They reported that students with EBD disrupted the learning of peers or they expressed guilt about students falling through the cracks due to so much time, attention, and energy being spent on the behavior. And there were also some logistical challenges, such as inadequate time, resources, space, and communications to accommodate the needs of students with EBD. Uh, participants stated it was difficult for them to juggle their usual responsibilities with implementing behavior plans, collecting data, modifying work, managing breaks, addressing behaviors, while trying to maintain learning and instruction for the rest of the class. They also reported inconsistent practices, poor communication, and just feeling out of the loop about behavior plans and practices. Educators stated we had insufficient staff available to intervene with crisis situations, no social emotional learning curriculum, not enough multi-sensory materials or areas for students to take breaks or calm themselves down, and no safe place for students to go when in crisis. So these findings informed the action plan for cycle one, Goals for this cycle were for educators to be better prepared to teach students with EBD and manage challenging behavior, to improve communication and collaboration among educators, and to increase the resources and supports for these students and for educators. So training was provided through three professional development workshops, nonviolent crisis intervention, zones of regulation, and identifying and meeting student needs. Communication was improved through weekly behavioral check-ins during common planning time, and a school-wide social-emotional learning curriculum was adopted, and we were actually able, we used the data from cycle zero um, to sort of prove the need to hire additional staff members and to get some grant money, and so we were able to hire some additional staff members of an assistant principal, a special ed teacher assistant, and we were able to increase the social workers' hours to full-time. Um, to add a support for teachers and for students with EBD. So to evaluate cycle one, I collected qualitative data about the challenges participants faced when educating students with EBD, their perceptions on the effectiveness of cycle one's action steps, whether they felt supported, prepared, and effective for challenging behavior, and I collected this through focus groups and interviews, and I also collected qualitative data about practices participants used to prevent and intervene with challenging behavior, if they applied the strategies from Cycle 1's action steps and the effectiveness of the practices, and those were collected through observations. 
Effectiveness was determined by whether educators felt more prepared and effective when including students with EBD, if they implemented strategies from the action steps, and if they were effective in engaging students in the general ed classroom. So my findings for cycle one indicated that the action plan helped to increase participants' preparedness and effectiveness for including these students by making them more aware of precipitating factors and student needs, providing strategies for verbal interventions and de-escalation, increasing proactive approaches, and decreasing reactive and punitive consequences. Participants reported improved communication, common language and approaches being utilized throughout the school, and better follow-through from administration. They also reported more staff and strategies to support educators and students, increased support from administration, and that special ed and lead teachers were no longer missing instruction or service hours to support challenging behavior. All participants expressed that they felt that the general ed classroom was an appropriate setting for students with EBD as long as there were proper supports in place, such as adequate staffing, training, and tools to help with behavior. Remaining challenges included finding effective practices for specific students, effectively intervening with challenging behaviors while maintaining the learning for the rest of the students, insufficient multisensory break materials and areas, insufficient time to collaborate with other professionals, and inconsistent communication among the special ed department. So these findings inform Cycle 2's action plan of improving teacher preparedness through a professional development workshop about using uh, proactive practices for preventing and intervening with challenging behaviors, and a behavior coach to provide strategies for individual students, improving collaboration through a community of practice focused on improving behavior and special education common planning time, and adding resources of a multi-sensory room and toolkits of multi-sensory resources for individual students. So again, we were able to use this data to help us get grant money so that we were actually able to build a whole multi-sensory room, and that was pretty cool. So Cycle 2 was implemented during the COVID-19 pandemic from September through December 2020. So a lot of schools in our area use distance learning or hybrid models, but Charter Academy, we returned to full in-person learning for the 2020-2021 school year. And the evaluation for cycle two was a really similar format to cycle one's evaluation. So findings from cycle two, it determined that the action steps improved participants' preparedness and effectiveness for teaching students with EBD. Participants reported that preventative practices and de-escalation had become second nature to them. They felt more prepared and effective for preventing and intervening with challenging behavior. All of the strategies from the behavior coach were effective in creating positive behavior changes. Participants reported less challenging behavior in the classroom and a reduction in the number of calls for support on the walkie-talkie. And a few participants even expressed that behavior was no longer a challenge for them. Participants stated that the behavior check-ins were still happening as needed, but behavior was really less of a concern for them this year. They found the community of practice to be a supportive community where they were able to collaborate, share resources for behavior, and learn from each other. They reported more resources and areas for relaxation, movement, and breaks. And they found the multisensory resources were effective for preventing and reducing challenging behavior. And then an interesting point that I found from my observations 
is that the first three observations I did during cycle zero resulted in students' behavior escalating to the point where the participants had to call for support on the walkie-talkie, students were removed from class, and punitive consequences for the students. And then two out of the three observations in cycle one were similar, where the students' behavior escalated, participants called for help, students were removed from class and had punitive consequences. But then all three observations I did in cycle two, and I even tried to find like the most challenging times, um, all of the participants were able to effectively prevent the students' behavior from escalating, and they were able to keep the students engaged in learning in the general education classroom. So findings indicate that both cycles one and two, the, the combination of action steps increased both participants and charter academies' preparedness and effectiveness for including students with EBD by having more staff, collaboration, professional development, strategies, and resources to support educators and students. So the knowledge generated from this research was really instrumental in helping Charter Academy develop more effective practices for including these students in the least restrictive environment. Like I mentioned before, when we began this research, educators frequently expressed feeling overwhelmed by behavior challenges. Uh, by ensuring that all educators were properly trained and supported, uh, we helped to make the general education classroom more equitable for students with emotional and behavioral disabilities, and we helped to improve the classroom environment for all stakeholders, including students with emotional and behavioral disorders, their peers, and educators. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing that, for sharing your research, for sharing what you've done. Um, you know, your action made a significant impact in your context, in that school, um, and the kids, the students are better off for it. And also, you know, the other uh, participants, the other teachers in the, in the building, they were learning along with you. And like you said, at the end of cycle two, they actually used the strategies that you were teaching them to transform their classroom environment. And, and that's inspiring. That's exciting to think about. As we... Uh, you know, wrap up your research and your ideas. We have listeners tuning in. What's an implication that you would like them to take with them from your research? Sure. Um, so I actually have a few implications. Um, findings implicate educators, they're not adequately prepared for the challenging behaviors that they might see in their classroom. The general education classroom, there's a wide range of abilities and needs. So all educators, so general ed teachers, special ed, teacher assistants, support professionals, specialists and consultants, they really need to have sufficient training for effective practices for teaching students with disabilities and how to prevent and intervene with challenging behavior. So I think in order to prepare educators, it's imperative that teacher preparation programs provide prospective students with adequate training and experience to apply effective strategies for teaching students with disabilities and behavioral challenges. Um, also, educators, they need support, so they need, they need the training, they need resources, they need time to be able to communicate and collaborate, and you need to have enough staff members to effectively prevent and intervene with all of the behavioral, safety, and logistical challenges that you encounter when including students with behavioral challenges. Both traditional public schools and charter schools um, should ensure that all educators are sufficiently trained and supported. 
And using um, gathering qualitative data about experiences and needs of educators, that can be a really effective way for schools to apply for grants, to get funding for professional development, resources, or additional staff members to help support educators and students. Um, another thing I wanted to note was that the COVID-19 pandemic, it really increased the use of virtual learning and um, the training and use resources that were effective in supporting educators with the inclusion of students with EBD can be used to help improve the education of students with virtual platforms. So by supporting parents with the education of their children at home, forming partnerships, using consistent practices and resources, training parents about effective strategies to engage and motivate their children and to prevent and intervene with challenging behavior can help students with EBD achieve positive outcomes in virtual learning. And then lastly, action research, it really is effective in creating positive organizational change. So this cyclical process of observe, reflect, plan, and act can be used to investigate and solve problems of practice within the K-12 schools to find solutions to real-world problems. Well, thanks, Amanda. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Thanks for the work that you have done and for sharing it with us. We're learning along with you as well and look forward to the work that you continue to do. Thanks for being on Rethinking EBU. Hey, everyone. This is Mike. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Rethinking EDU and learning more about some of the amazing researchers that we've become friends with over the time that we've spent at Northeastern University. We really think that the research that's coming out of Northeastern right now is super inspiring, and we hope that if you're interested, you'll reach out to some of these researchers. You can um, contact them through us by shooting us over an email. You can find our email address on our homepage. We just added it there at rethinkingedu.co. And if you're super interested in potentially pursuing a doctorate, we hope that you'll reach out to us. Shoot us an email and we'd be happy to chat with you about your search for the proper program, something that you're potentially passionate about to pursue, and whether or not a doctoral program is the right move for you. As always, in this mid-roll section, you know you got to hear from Matt Downing. So check out his podcast, Diving Deep EDU. Thanks. A quick interruption to let you know about another great podcast. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. Diving deep, EDU. Thought-provoking conversations. Amanda and Dana, so awesome. I so appreciate you both for sharing your research, sharing your insights, and sharing your implications for our listeners. We really love talking with other researchers, and we've loved this series of talking with our colleagues and peers at Northeastern. Every episode that we have of Rethinking EDU, we have a moment of reflection at the end where we ask our uh, participants here in the episode to, you know, sit back with us and say, hmm, what is this conversation making me rethink about education? And I would love to hear co-hosts and guests, of course, what this conversation is making you all rethink. And I usually go last, but I'm going to kick it off this evening. <laughs> um, so one of the one of the things that I am just 
constantly left rethinking about education after talking with every one of our of our colleagues from Northeastern is, you know, the the enemy of the future of education is the statement, we've always done things this way, so therefore, right? And it, I hear that so much in what all of the research that's been shared, especially with these two um, researchers this evening, Dana and Amanda. You know, Dana's here talking about how to radically transform grades, but not really because everybody's afraid to radically transform grades, right? But so what Dana's saying is, is you know, the train wreck analogy, we're watching grades be like terrible in in what they're doing and yet everybody's like oh no it can't change grades you know it, it somebody has got to take the first step there and i think amanda is sort of alluding to the same kind of thing you know we've always done this sort of mode of uh school the same way where we're you know maybe questionably supporting teachers in their efforts to meet students who have you know these extra needs we're asking more of teachers to plan more innovative curriculum to engage students on a regular basis and yet we're defunding schools and um you know we're we're uh having fewer support staff in schools and because we've always done things a certain way in the past in education, that's sort of becoming the enemy of the future of learning and the future of schools. And these conversations have really highlighted that for me. Janine, what about you? Yeah, I actually, a common theme that I keep seeing come up, and I even saw it in my own research, was this, that why when things in the school system really aren't working um you know and so often teachers are asked to implement you know some kind of new reform or you know there's just they're they're just expected to know how to do these things you know whatever it might be you know whether it's the, the you know assessing students or dealing with behaviors in the classroom they're just expected to to just know it all you know and i think we've both dana uh, and Amanda here have highlighted the need for like real professional development that um, teachers need training on these sort of things. And there should never really be an assumption that they they've got it or that they know it. Um, so I don't know, there needs to be a way to interact with the teachers to find, find out like what's their starting point and what do they actually know and what do they need to know in order to really, um, you know, run as a cohesive organization and get everybody on the same page and work together collaboratively to make sure that, you know, the students' needs are being met and that you are creating a learning environment that is vibrant and engaging for all students. Um, so I don't know, I just kind of, the discussions that we've been having here, that kind of resonated with me that this idea, again, of uh, teachers do need professional development. They do need access to resources. They do need the appropriate level of support. Um that yeah, it goes back to what Mike was just talking about, right? There, there needs to be uh, you know appropriate fund uh, funding so that um, you know you can have. It's easy to say you know oh go you know we're gonna have a fully inclusive classroom, but to have just one teacher in there and then not have the support to make it happen, it's going to, it's a disaster just waiting, you know. So anyway, that was that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> sure, sure, Matt. What about you? What are you thinking? Yeah, Amanda, as you as you were talking, I was getting a bit of flashbacks. You know, with these different behavior issues. I've been in some schools uh, for a lot of years with extreme behavior issues. Um, you know, maybe similar to what you were experiencing, and it's so hard. You know, in that situation, if there's any listeners here, you know, that are dealing with those day in and day out. Um, 
you know, it's not easy and it beats down the teacher uh, trying to deal with that. And the support that you're talking about is instrumental um, and the way that you were going about it. And oftentimes that's disregarded uh, because those schools with the behavior issues are the ones that oftentimes need the most support and they aren't getting it. And, you know, maybe one of the reasons for the behavior issues. And, and so I'm just thinking about that. And I'm thinking about it in a couple of ways, like my heart feels for the teachers that are dealing with those behavior issues day in and day out, and they don't see an end in sight. And, and they dread going to work because of that desk being thrown across the classroom again. And that's not a good place to be. And no one's, uh, you know, sort of lecturing them tonight. Um, but then these supports are sort of offer hope, uh, you know, to bring about effective change that you've seen. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Matt. Thanks for sharing that. Amanda, what what about you? Do you have any reflections to share uh, about this conversation? Sure. So my reflection is actually how important it is to reflect. I feel, you know, I'm guilty of this too. As educators, we're so busy and especially with COVID and everything going on, it's like we're going from one thing to the next. We're burnt out, but it's really so important to do your own reflections or even as a school or with colleagues to really reflect on what's going on, what's working, what's not working. You know, Dana was talking about assessment and a lot of people are feeling that, you know, that grades, you know, haven't really been working for, I forget when that study was, but like hundreds of years and we're still doing yeah. it the same way. You know, in, if we're not reflecting, how can we really create change or realize what needs to change? And I just, at least in Islands, you know, they're kind of trying to do that. We have our professional growth goals that we're doing and reflecting on, but that's really only three times a year. Like, I, I feel like we almost need to build in more time for reflection for educators, their own practices, and then also collectively. Yeah, that's a great point, Amanda, for sure. Dana, I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts here as well. Sure. Um, I have to sort of harken back to the title of your podcast, Re Rethinking EDU, because um, it strikes me as I was listening to Amanda and, and we were all talking about our uh, different uh, diff dissertation in practice, action steps and, and various things that we were doing about the program, that we were all doing this in the midst of um, a global pandemic. And if there's ever a moment to take a step back and, and rethink what we're doing and try some new things, now is a good time because uh, I can tell you when, when we implemented the proficiency-based grading and authentic assessment uh, guide that I wrote with my uh, group, what we discovered is that, you know, it's in the middle of a pandemic people are not expecting things to be exactly like they would be in a typical year. So I think it made the participants feel like they could take some risks with grading assessment and they could try some different things and it would be okay because it was, there was, you know, the whole, the pandemic was throwing everything off anyway. And I think that that's probably true of Amanda's project as well. I think probably any of us could say the same thing that we're in this unprecedented moment and going forward, we could make some really great positive changes. My fear, just because I've been an educator now for over 20 years, is that we're going to go right back to the status quo 
as soon as we feel safe. <laughs> normalcy, Dana, normalcy, right? We all just want to get back to normal. I agree with you and I, I, I share your fear and I, but I also am hopeful like you're sharing, you know? Um, I think that uh, all of the reflections that everybody shared are really spot on. And, and I think that this whole series of um, highlighting people's research has really, I hope pushed everybody in the audience to continue to think about the value of research in their practice, to continue to think about the value of um, doing things differently through a change agent model that uh, the dissertation and practice is really based around and to really think about like, you know, who are the other people in my community that are doing interesting things like Dana, like Amanda, maybe there's a teacher down the hall from you that is studying for their doctorate right now. Go have a conversation with them and see what they're, see what they're diving into, seeing what they're, uh, you know, being pushed to rethink about education. But whatever the case might be, listeners, we thank you all for joining us this uh, fine day, wherever you get your podcasts. We hope that you loved this episode just like we did, just like we loved our conversation with Amanda and Dana here. Um, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We would love that. We're, you've been sitting at about 20, 21 ratings here for a little while now. We would love to have some more ratings. If you really enjoy our podcast, you can hop over to patreon.com slash rethinkingedu and support our podcast for as little as $1 a month. That goes to, you know, keep the lights on, as they say here in podcast land, pay for our hosting services and so we can continue to have these conversations with amazing people like Amanda and Dana. Listeners, we appreciate you. And as always, keep rethinking edu.